This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a great privilege for me to be sitting here with Dick Lucas at the uh, offices of Proclamation Trust. Have you been here before? Uh, yes, rather, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. You're, you live nearby in I London. Do. Have yes, you I... always lived in London, Dick? Uh, well, of course, since being rector in 61, it's a long time ago, I've lived in London, uh-huh. but not before that. Uh-huh. Uh, where did you come from before? I lived in, I was a Sussex sheep. Oh, really? Yes, we were, I was brought up really largely in Lewis in Sussex, a fairly quiet and dull town. <laughs> With some good second-hand bookshops. Very good second-hand bookshops in those days. I don't know whether they survive. <laughs> and that's what we miss, of course, in London. No, you're right. Uh, that was very happy when I used to go down there occasionally on my off day. My mother lived to a great age, so I sometimes went down to see her and uh, came to those bookshops with a great... A great joy, except one's bank balance. <laughs> and how frequently do you go back to Sussex? No, I think I have one friend left in this. Mm. Um, and it's very hilly, so it's not suitable for an old duck like me. <laughs> I miss the I miss the hills of Sussex. I come from Brighton, of course. Are you, yes, and uh, well, you see, Brighton hardly exists in the eyes of Lewis. <laughs> I remember once having my hair cut in Brighton, and he asked where I came from. And he, I said Lewis, and he said, "Well, where's that?" And I said, "Well, it just happens to be in the capital of a thousand years ago, and when Brighton didn't exist." Yes. I mean, he didn't quite take that. <laughs> In wintertime, I especially miss the hills, walking on the downs. Yes, the downs are marvellous. I do miss them. Mm. And, of course, I, I had a father who taught me to walk, which is a thing people don't do today. So we used to walk over the downs, and that was a great joy. Mm. Again, yes. that's quite a long time ago. Yes, you missed the Sunday afternoon stroll on the, uh, yeah. on the downs. I'm glad you love the downs. Yeah. Good. They're, they are quite unique, aren't they, in yes. a way? There was a man called Stuart Acton, who he did watercolours of the downs at. And um, no one else has been able to get that colour. Mm. Uh, and his watercolours are worth looking out for. The trouble is they're fading. Mm. Uh-huh. I've just got one of them. Uh-huh. And, you know, water, that's the problem with watercolour. Right. It fades away. Right, right. And pink comes through, which doesn't belong to the Downs at all. <laughs> so, uh, you, coming from Sussex originally, was it while you were still at home that you came, you were exposed to the Gospel first? I was asked, when I was 15, I was asked out to uh, boys' camp. It was wartime. Uh, my, ours was a very close family. I don't think my parents wanted me to be away in the holidays. But as it happened, uh, the army had, the government had made it clear that young people should do something for the national health, or whatever you like to call it. The effort. And so we all had to go farming, and it was quite ridiculous, you know, picking up turnips, as it was going to help any, any national effort. So because of that, and it was very fortunate for me, um, I went. I think I'd picked up something from a crudest sailor class at school, but nothing really made sense until I went down there when I was 15. That's when it all made sense for the first time. Extraordinarily, because we were worn out by picking up turnips or whatever it was, uh, in this Dorset forestry, I think we did. Well, incidentally, um, it belonged to a man called Rolf Gardner, whose son is John Elliot Gardner, the great uh, bark specialist. Gracious me. Yeah. So we, it was a wonderful time, really. I only went once, but I, I was really converted. Mm-hmm. Though I made very little use of it at school when I got back. There wasn't any real Christian help there. Mm. 
and I didn't come alive spiritually until I joined the Navy. Of course, everybody had to join up at 18 in those days, so I went to the Navy. And uh, there it was really one thing or another, I suppose. Um, though I did, I was a midshipman, which was the lowest form of animal life in the Navy. You probably don't know the Navy. But, uh, <laughs> midshipman, huh? They're very low, low, low in the scale of things. <laughs> and uh, I was appointed to a flotilla leader of, of fleet minesweepers in the Mediterranean, which was rather uh, unlucky. I had some friends in the other ships, but uh, the flotilla leader has a lot of senior officers in charge of things like gunnery and ASDICs and all the rest of it. So they're mostly lieutenants and lieutenant commanders who have been there some time. So I think my job as a midshipman was largely to hand out the gin. <laughs> you know, and uh, that was really all I was any use to. <laughs> fact, when I first arrived in the wardroom, uh, I made some comment, and the navigating officer turned to me and said, who asked you to speak? Oh, gosh. That's the old Navy. Um, I don't think it's like that today. They want to keep people in the Navy today. Right. They don't treat them like that today. Right, right. And that did me a lot of good. I suppose I'd been fairly successful at school, and this really brought me down to uh, bedrock. So it was an unhappy ship. First lieutenant was an unpleasant fellow. In the Navy, your first lieutenant is the person on whom happiness depends. And these two uh, but the thing that brought me back spiritually were these two lads uh, on the lower deck, as it was called in those days. One of them was a fine lad, son of a butcher in South End used to stand by the rum. In those days they had these great things of rum, you know. And he'd stand by it and when all these young sailors came along, some there only 18, he would say, do you really want it? It was very fiery stuff. And they would say, no, I don't need to push it out of what's called the porthole by people today. And uh, how on earth they found out I was a Christian because I wasn't living as a Christian, I have no idea. So they asked if I would lead them in a Bible study and I had to go to the captain what's usually called a four-ring captain, a very fine man, actually, though he'd been minesweeping for four or five years, and I think really was at the end of his time. Can you imagine me as a midshipman going to ask him if I could lead a Bible study? That did me a power of good. He handed me a glass of water on the bridge, I remember. And then later that I discovered that I was drinking more or less neat gin. Good great. And so you were living, giving Bible studies on this ship? Yes. Uh, and I know that I really came alive at that time. I can remember distinctly coming back from the junior officers' sports club in Malta, which was very naval-orientated in those days. And I remember walking on air back to the ship. <laughs> and I knew then that I was uh, alive. But I didn't make much of it. I tried to witness a bit. but. Uh, so that was a tough time. They became happier because I stayed on the ship for quite a time until I was one of the sort of last people there. <laughs> and then it was rather fun. So I came out in 1946. You have lived through a season which uh, we, it's hard for us to imagine. I heard you say at the EMA a couple of years ago that uh, when you were uh, developing and going to ministry, that there were only two commentaries on the Gospel of John. Yeah, yes. swimming in these, in these, in yes. these books. Yes, there are too many books, aren't there, if anything, today. When I say that, I know the labor of producing a commentary, so I, I respect that, but in a way there are too, there's too much riches. And uh, No, it's really true. There was An Understanding by Men by old Canon T.C. Hammond. That was the only doctrine book available, as I'd like to remember. Henry Mel's commentaries were there, uh, scholarly. Um, devotional, 
but not really today what you want. Mm -hmm. No, we, we, uh, we saw very little help of that kind. Mm. Today they're swamped with it. Yes, indeed, yes. In fact, uh, interesting that you have been a, a, a church leader who is respected by academics, but you never became an academic. But if you look at Ed Clowney's book, The Church, it starts with a vignette, a story of going to St. Helens and hearing you. Yes, wasn't he a lovely man? That's right. He used to come to meet his son, and he came in and was amazed at the businessman coming to St. Helens. Mm. He was a very generous fellow. Mm. He loved it. But the heroes of church history, who most of us have been inspired by, have been academics second. So Jonathan right. Edwards was a pastor first. Yes. And, uh, oh, brother, you're talking about somebody of a very high level of academia, which is not me. <laughs> I think I got a 2-2 at university. And I was playing quite a lot of sport as well. What were you studying? Well... It was quite easy to get in in my day. Um, I had a very curious career, really, because the, when I was called up into the Navy, uh, the Navy was sending naval cadets to university for six months before they actually started their training, which was quite strange. I still really don't know quite why. Mm -hmm. So I went to Magdalen Oxford, just as it happened. I mean, as I came out of the box, so to speak, and had C.S. Lewis as my tutor for six months, which I, when I think of now, I break out in a cold sweat because I knew no English literature and I had to read him an essay every, every week. <laughs> Can you believe it? Uh, in this room clothed with smoke, he smoked, uh, of course, this great man, which incidentally the Americans appreciate far more than we do, um, and he is a very great man and he'll continue to be used. But he was a strange fellow, and he wasn't, uh, you know, his, his line was, I'm not your schoolmaster, he left you to get on with life. Mm. But can you believe, looking back, well, it actually makes me tremble now to think of R.C. Lucas walking in there uh, to this room full of smoke while he puffed away and listened to me uh, giving an essay on Milton, of whom I knew practically nothing. Of whom he wrote his preface to Paradise Lost. Yeah, that's right. So when I came back from the Mediterranean and... Uh, out into normal life. Uh, far too many of us had been to these colleges. I couldn't get back into Magdalen. And so I fortunately went to Cambridge, which I do think was providential. Ex-servicemen were very much spoiled, really. We could do our degree in two years. And I had no idea what the kick you was, which was at its strength then. Mm. I mean, it was extraordinary. As far as I know, only one senior member of the university supported the Christian Union. That was Dr. Baz Atkinson of great fame, uh, under librarian to the university library. And you see, the Christian Union was full of ex-colonels, um, air aces, I mean literally men who got DSOs and all sorts. So you had a Christian Union of 400 strong, a great many ex-servicemen, and yet the senior members really paid no attention to it. Mm -hmm. And it was, the, it was the year of the great missions, which I suppose really we shan't see again in mm. quite the same way. Mm -hmm. Dr. Barnhouse in 1949, John Stott in 1952, uh, Milligram in 1955, John Stott again. Uh, Dr. Atkinson used to say it was a great ten years, and they were amazing times when uh, the whole university really could hear the, the gospel. Mm. 
and the Christian Union was so strong. Mm. So they were unforgettable times, and I was very privileged to be a tiny part of it. Mm, mm, mm. When you heard almost legendary uh, preaching in the imagination of many now, uh, do, you, do you remember the effect of it on you at that time? I can remember the effect of it on other people. Uh-huh. Um, I can remember John, of course it was, there were days when people dressed properly, of course, you know, in the old style. So I can remember John Stott in the pulpit of Great St. Mary's, which was only grudgingly given to the Christian Union for its use. Mm-hmm. They could hardly say no. There he was in his beautiful white purcell, uh, in a surplus and hood and so on. Double first from the University of Cambridge, so very difficult for the seniors to criticize him. There is a Cambridge graduate of the highest quality. I shall not forget those early sermons on the first nights. And many, and some years later, Owen Chadwick, a great figure, wrote to him, not an evangelical, I think, but a great figure, um, wrote to him and said, uh, that was the finest preaching I ever heard. Owen Chadwick would be, I think, a high churchman. Mm. So that's the kind of tribute mm, that, you know, you remember. It was, it was remarkable. Mm-hmm. All three were totally different. Barnhouse was argumentative, very clever, very dogmatic. Uh, Billy Graham was Billy Graham and John Stott was uniquely John Stott. And it taught me that uh, you can have different styles of preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were very different. Uh-huh. Barnhouse was unbelievably blunt. Um, in a way that John Stott would never be, or Sunday Billy. Mm. Uh, I, I was there in 1949 at his mission, you know. Uh, he would stand there clothed in an amazing array of gowns and say things like, um, talking about your theological tutors, he would say, well, poor lost sinner, D.D. And on those first nights we could see our own tutors hiding behind the pillars, you know. <laughs> But it was a great mission because he, he spoke very bluntly in a way that I've never heard really since. And a great many men who would never normally go to missions were converted that week. Mm-hmm. I, I remember the president of the Kikyu. Of course, we didn't have cars in those days. I know no students had cars in those days, uh, but we all had bicycles. And um, so this, the president of the Kikyu had to get a taxi to Dick Barnhouse, to Girton, which in those days was a, uh, a ladies' college. And Dr. Barnhouse, what is your text? My text is, I will spread dung on their faces. It's from Malachi. <laughs> Poor <laughs> President of the Kiku, completely taken apart. I don't know what he said, something like, really, Dr. Barnhouse, that is my text. And it was. So they're great memories. Mm. The Christian Union continued to be very strong at Cambridge. It's, it's a remarkable thing, and of mm. course that work still goes on. Yes, indeed, and many people who've been through it have been so useful for uh, gospel ministry. Yes, they have. Yes, and I think it's something that we should pray for, the student work. Mm. Now, now, having having studied, what was the route that brought you to London, to St. Helens? I was a curate, and then I joined the Church Pastoral Aid Society to work amongst ordinands, and during that time, a group of city men they were mostly directors, Christian men, met together to study the Bible once a week with a man called Tony Kempton, who was a merchant in honey and a very domineering and powerful leader. And uh, you know, when men meet together like that week after week for several years, something usually emerges from it. (laughs) 
And what emerged from it was a desire to have a gospel service in the city. Mm. Now, Dick Reese had been preaching in the city for the Christian unions, but apart from that, uh, the churches were remarkably dead. Mm. I'll come to that in a minute. Um, in some ways, it was a dumping ground in which the bishop could pit people here and didn't know to fit in anywhere else. There were one or two, of course, good men. And these men asked me if I would come and preach in the city for a few months and see if it would work. And they took St. Mary Abchurch, which is one of the beautiful little wren churches that nobody really knows. Mm. Uh, at the moment it's visible because everything around it has been pulled down. Mm. And uh, we started in January, the first Tuesday in January 1961. And these men, of course, worked like crazy. They were influential, and they filled the church. It, I suppose it holds, it's a small church, I suppose it holds about 150. Mm. And we started with a full house. Mm. We had a notice outside which would be impossible in these correct days, which said men only. Ah, gracious. And there was a little uh, gallery at the top, uh, which looked like a Jewish uh, gallery with sort of iron bars in front, in which the women who dared to come were placed. <laughs> Dear, dear. Uh, it was all very good humour, <laughs> and uh, it was full and continued to be full for six months. I, I preached every Tuesday, and this greatly encouraged the men who felt that uh, they needed to build on that. Well, it so happened that St. Helens uh, became free, uh, and in those days nobody was interested in the city churches. I think four people applied. In the Church of England in those days you didn't apply for livings, so that was not done. But in the city of London, you could apply. It was mm -hmm. an old tradition. Mm -hmm. And so one of these men went to, around to his city companies encouraging uh, them to uh, support it because the patrons were the merchant tailors. And uh, in the end, I had an interview, uh, a couple of interviews with the merchant tailors, and they appointed me. I think they appointed me partly because I was young and partly because they were determined not to have the bishop's nominee. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a strong sense of English and uh, city independence there. Right, they right. were determined to have their own man. Uh -huh. And so, I mean, it was extraordinary because I was much the youngest of all the city clergy. Uh, it, it could only be, part, you could only feel that God had opened a particular door. Mm. So I started my ministry there in May 1961 on this Ascension Day. Mm -hmm. But, of course, I could never have done anything. Um, what do you do in the middle of the city? I could have never done anything but for these men. Mm. They were amusingly called the DAPQ by one of their sons, the Partners and, uh, Directors and Partners Christian Union. That was meant to be a funny title. It became rather serious. And uh, they worked, and, of course, they filled the place up. And if you start with a dozen men at a lunch hour service, you'll finish up with a dozen men. Mm -hmm. So we started with, what, 150? And uh, so that soon moved to about 400 because they worked so hard. Gracious. The city churches, I think, showed why the Church of England really had, uh, had become in its um, ineffectiveness. That looking back, I see that the notices outside the city churches, and many of these men had other jobs as well, so perhaps they hadn't time to, to do evangelism, but they advertised communion service once a week. Mm -hmm which, of course, is the service for insiders. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the very fact that that was the only thing on the notice board, I think, is quite telling. Yes. 
Uh, we had a, a, a communion service every Wednesday. Uh, I took it uh, loyally because I sh thought it should be continued, and uh, four or five uh, people came. Until I met John Stott one day, uh, he was an astonishing leader of us, of course, from that period on. The 1950s were great, a great decade with John Stott as a leader. And said to me, what on earth do you do having a communion service? They ought to be at the Lord's table in the home churches, which of course is right. And so I stopped it immediately, because mm -hmm. I realized that this was inappropriate. And we concentrated on the Tuesday lunch hour, to which there is this testimony by dear... Um, Ed Clowney. Ed Clowney that you mentioned. Mm. And the, the Tuesday lunchtime service has been uh, an event which has been significant for British evangelicalism. The church yeah. grew and grew and grew, and the lessons that you learned are lessons which uh, are highly transferable. For example, you, I, I hear that you learned early on that the service should be a certain length, and it was a certain length. Absolutely and people ca came knowing they could trust they that could it would be finished yeah. at the right time. Yeah. So that even now, when I do my little Bible studies on our little church plans, I decide it will be half an hour, and it is half an hour, yeah, so that I people don't go away important. thinking this is just very long. They go away thinking this is useful, and it will be finished on time. And there's a little yes. bit of order. <laughs> other things. Uh, can you tell us any more? I'm fascinated to hear you talking in terms of how these other people did so much work to make the uh, thing work. I would never have worked without them. <laughs> I have had a certain uh, fluency, I suppose, a certain gift. Um, but it was a real partnership. Mm. And as you say, we were dead on time. We started at five past one and finished at 35 prayer, hymn, reading, and then straight into the talk, which was 21 minutes in length, and we finished at 25 to 2. And then, of course, the key thing was we had a, a, a buffet lunch afterwards. So, in fact, the thing was exactly an hour, one till two, and of that, 25 minutes was the buffet lunch. Hmm. Uh, later, a lady called uh, Doreen Aldred, who had been a professional caterer, did our lunch there. St. Helens uh, has gone on to much greater glories than my day, but um, <laughs> they've never had lunches as good as hers. <laughs> and buffet lunches. And so that was a tremendous opportunity for people to talk with one another. Oh, fantastic. And yes, we did finish on time, and I think that was very important. Mind you, today, and increasingly, in these skyscrapers, they try to keep everybody in at the lunch hour. Mm -hmm. uh, the women have their hairdressers, you know, and all that inside the building. <laughs> so you don't have people moving around as we did, and we really did have people moving around, mm -hmm. which was a great blessing. Yes, indeed. And so if a young man passed the front door, as they would look in and see something like, yeah, something like 400 men yeah. in their gray suits, it was gracious, but hats and umbrella time. You know, it's all quite different today. Um, and the preaching of a pungent gospel. <laughs> well, I hope so. Yeah. Now, sitting here, of course, Christian Heritage London, we are uh, we are extraordinarily privileged to be walking through streets. Which I mean, around the corner from here, F. B. Mayer ministered, and Charles Spurgeon ministered down the other way, and oh, across uh, the river amazing, we have amazing. the extraordinary history of the Reformation and yeah. Wilberforce met Newton round the corner. Yeah. Great things. Has anyone of these uh, people been a, a particular inspiration to you? Have you, uh, have you been, had any friends from history who have uh, encouraged uh, and motivated too many, you? I think, all in every <laughs> generation, yes. I, I could, it's all like Hebrews 11, isn't yes, it, from yes. the Old Testament. You could get the same list for the New Testament. Quite, quite. I've been reading, rereading Moody lately. Mm. He's not 
quite approved of by a strong Calvinist. Uh, interestingly enough, n nothing has happened quite like it in Glasgow and Edinburgh since 1865. He was fairly illiterate. He had a minimal theology, really. But he was a man of God, called by God in an extraordinary way. And you probably know the story. It is an extraordinary story. Um, and interestingly, if you read around, I've read a lot before, but I just happen to be rereading it. The Lyle Dorset book is very interesting. Actually, you find that the young men uh, with real theology, people like James Stalker, uh, Horatio Bonner, Bonner, these were all young men at the time, 1865, and uh, they immediately saw, though they would have been, of course, more Calvinistic in doctrine, they immediately saw that though this man was criticized as being a rank Arminian, God was with him. Mm. And they all, as young men, supported him. It's okay. very interesting. You know, people don't read the history carefully enough, but the young men of ability all supported him. And there's been nothing like it really quite the same in Glasgow and Edinburgh since. Mm. Fascinating story. Mm. God has so often raised up the layman. I don't know why that is. I think it is sometimes to humble the clergy, but mm. when you think of people like Gypsy Smith, when you, people, uh, when you think of some of these men who've been great, when you think of Billy Sunday, mm. <laughs> Billy Sunday uh, in the uh, Victorian era in America made many mistakes, but um, it's quite interesting that the Princeton theologians, uh, I'm a great lover of the Princeton theologians, Princeton Seminary in the 19th century, uh, they asked Billy Sunday to come to uh, Princeton and speak to the students. Now, that speaks to me of a, a width of sympathy and understanding that is sometimes lacking, I think. Um, God raises up people without education, sometimes to humble those who have it. And uh, it was uh, in 19, was it 1929, when Will Nicholson, who'd done a great work amongst the um, ship workers in Belfast, preached a mission to the Kikyo, which was uh, thought of as being very scandalous. Uh, Michael Ramsey, who came out of Catherine, never forgave the Kikyo for that mission. <laughs> uh, he was a fairly crude Northern Ireland gospel preacher. Cambridge didn't like that. But many people think that it refounded the Christian Union at a time of great difficulty. Gracious me. You're drawing attention to something which it's a delight to hear you drawing attention to because what has come from your ministry here in, at St. Helens has been a vibrant, warm-hearted church which when people meet people from St. Helens, I heard someone recently tell me, I like the people of St. Helens, but they're always trying to save my soul, he said, which I thought was a beautiful testimony. But the church is also known for its care in the text and you tend to find people who can become so careful in the text that they are no longer active now it's a delight to say that's uh, knowing people from st helens that they are an active church planting church now uh, warm-hearted in, in in evangelism but it's fascinating to hear you talk in terms of the res this respect for a, a, a sort of spirit-stimulated laity who have yes. been struck and held by the gospel and it's oh. come from them that's right, and I thank God for what St. Helens is doing today, and they are great days. Mm. I've thought about this a lot. I think PT was necessary to bring people back to the text in our corner of uh, evangelical Anglicanism and so on, the free church as well. Uh, you tend to get a, 
a thing ever done, mm -hmm. so that people are only interested in getting right. Now, I say to them, of course you've got to get the text right, but Quite. that by itself is not preaching. Uh, quite. And I think we do suffer at the moment from a slight... It's the reverse of a good side of the coin, if you see what I mean. The, the, the good side is people are really getting to grips on the text. Mm -hmm. But then it can become dull mm -hmm. and pedestrian and, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. I, I, I hope that we shall take the text seriously, but also uh, perhaps be more like the giants of old in being able to reach the hearts of men. Amen. Yes, fascinating that at the moment, I remember, I can't remember as far back as you, when we were preoccupied with getting it right and that people who talked about experience, one was a little more suspicious of them. But now we have characters like John Piper, Tim Keller, Michael Reeves, and many of these uh, preachers who are preaching in such a way that you know you've got it right because your heart is warm. That's right. Uh, that is so right. And that's what, we need. that's what we see in those men and what we need. Yes. So now, um, when you were planting the church at, uh, at St. Helen's Dick, did, there are a number of models which we find uh, the apostles in the text proposing. So, for example, we have this extraordinary, I, I was reading this morning from Paul speaking to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I thought that was an extraordinary and a beautiful uh, Wonderful description, mission yeah. statement in a way. Yes, yes, yes. it is. Was there, one, was there a particular goal which you had in mind? Were you aiming at something at St. Helens or were you th simply throwing seeds out there and seeing what would land on good soil? Well, because of the situation at the time, of course, it's changed very much now. Women have come into the city and are taking major jobs, and that's fine. But it was very much a men's world, and I think these fellows, these DAFQ members, felt as I felt, that if you reach the husband, you reach the family, mm -hmm. basically. Quite. Whereas I think the times we were coming, where it was the mother uh, who went to church and not the man, and that, I think, really has continued and is a sign of the Church of England's decline and the other denominations. So I think we did have it in our mind that reaching men was important because they went back home. And, and the, one of the results was is the girls became a little jealous and said, why are you getting all these good things and not us? <laughs> and much later on, when Ashburnham became a great centre, uh, I, I had quite a lot to do with that because I knew John Bickersith, who was the, who had inherited Ashburnham. Mm -hmm. We used to have, we still do have, our summer weeks, uh, two weeks, when the, uh, of course, wives and children come as well, mm -hmm. and that's been wonderful. But mm -hmm. in those early days when I was there, of course, we only had the men. But it was lovely. The young men went back to their churches. I think of, I can think of several men now in my mind's eye went back to their churches and started a youth fellowship. Yeah. So. In a way, you can't do everything, can you? We had to do what we could do, which mm. was to reach the men. But mm. one knew very well that if they went back to their churches uh, and began to do other things, in a sense, we were helping to do that. Mm. 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 So you can't do everything. I think some people try to do everything and mm. can't. Yes. So it was a limited ministry, yes. Mm -hmm. But it's fascinating, because you were actually aiming at something. Someone said, uh, if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it was the businessmen that drove it, you see. In a sense, I was their servant. 
Um, and because such very large numbers started to come, that concentrated our minds on doing that. Gosh. Many other things, of course, came out of that. In 1966, I think it was, we started an evening service. Uh, All Souls was magnificent in the 1950s, and in a sense, perhaps there wasn't a need for it. But there are lots of medics in the east end of the city. It's amazing how they fit in somewhere. They find lodging somewhere, <laughs> and of course the nurses have their homes. So in 19, I think it was about six years after I began, we started an evening service. We didn't, funnily enough, we started it at eight o'clock in the evening when they came back from their weekends. And um, so that was really at, uh, medical students and nurses, and that's always been a feature of St. Helens ever since. Mm. So, in a sense, you meet the need that is there. Mm-hmm. I wasn't clever enough to cook that up. It was quite obvious that that was there. I'm not a very inventive chap. I think our job is to meet what is in front of us. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and uh, finally, Dick, what's perhaps new, what's exciting you presently? And you think, I'd love to see people get this. I wish I'd known it. <laughs> yeah, I think Lucas's are not excited people. I mean, <laughs> my, my forebears are solid ex-Quakers, Quakers of the 18th and 19th century. I don't think that Sunday meeting at the Quakers is an exciting ball. And uh, I think one of the benefits of, of, of inheriting that from your forebears is that you're neither up or down. I'm, I'm not a man who gets excited and I'm not a man who gets depressed. <laughs> so I'm not special. I'm, I am very excited at what is happening at St. I'm very excited with this uh, church planting, all these young men mm. who are full of zeal, but on the other hand, um, a secular Briton is going to give them a hard time. Yes. And I think our job at the moment is to build them up for that. Yes. But I'm also excited when I go into the kitchen yesterday and find somebody's just had a new daughter, and that's one more person in the kingdom of God. Mm. Um, otherwise, I think I'm a fairly dull bloke, really, <laughs> like all these, like my forebears. Good men, but dull. <laughs> And what advice would you give to people going into the ministry now? You've seen, you've, you're, you're naming people who, who we, and you yourself as someone, I, I saw a photo recently of a, a, a legacy photo of people who came to a, a service at St. Helens that people have been sent internationally. And that the room was full of men who are now in ministry, right. who have been motivated, inspired by what you've been doing there. Um, what, what advice would you give to, oh, to The advice you must give to 90-year-olds like me is not to give advice. People don't really, <laughs> when you come 90-plus, people don't really want to hear your advice. <laughs> so as you approach the end of your first century, your advice is, <laughs> I'm too wise to be giving advice. <laughs> well, it's been fantastic to have this time. Thank you so much, oh, Dick. I'm delighted to do it. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast, And for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.